It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back. Last week, we spoke to my fellow co-host of The Five, Jesse Waters, about his new book, How I Saved the World. Jesse, as you can see from The Five, always makes me laugh, and I really loved hearing his unique perspective on career, fatherhood, and life. Really loved his book and highly recommend it. My guest this week has used her unique skills in networking and communications to provide very valuable insight to thousands of women. I'm a bit of a podcast enthusiast. I asked my niece if she listened to any, and Peter interrupted saying, if you don't, you will by the end of the weekend because she'll beat it into you. Ha, I just want to share. Laura Cox Kaplan is the former principal in charge of U.S. government, regulatory affairs, and public policy at Price Waterhouse Cooper. She currently serves as an advisor, author, and board member. In addition to those responsibilities, she hosts the She Said, She Said podcast. Laura shares advice from her decades of executive-level experience in public policy and communications, and some of the best advice she's heard from guests on her own podcast. Laura, you and I have long known each other, but I don't know the story of how... She Said, She Said podcast got started. How did that come to be? Well, thank you for asking and thank you for for uh, inviting me to join you today. I am really honored to be here. And as you know, I'm a big fan of your book. I'm really a big fan of anything that you do. So thank, oh, thank you, you. <laughs> for, for having me. Um, so She Said, She Said actually grew out of an idea that I had and frankly, a bit of a frustration that I had about not being able to find the kind of advice and conversations that I was looking for related to women and professional development. And at the time, I was an executive at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I just began to think I should be doing something else, that there's more for me to do. And as I searched for these kinds of conversations and didn't find them, It occurred to me, um, actually, because a friend suggested, hey, you should think about a podcast around this. I was also teaching um, a university course for young women, a a self-awareness and personal development course. And a lot of the curriculum actually have become the topics that we tend to talk about on the podcast. And so I found all of these pieces ultimately coming together and they have become what is now she said she said podcast we have about 200 hours at this point of content that we've developed and about 150 some odd episodes and um uh, you know across the various platforms and it's been really incredible because it's a collaborative effort it's not just my point of view or my advice because I don't have all the answers, certainly. It's more tapping into a really, really broad range of women and voices from different 
perspectives with different uh, different jobs, different skills, different lives, different political beliefs. Um, just across the board, it's a very diverse makeup of women. What I find so interesting is that you see a number of threads that run through these conversations, one of which is this idea of how important your mindset is when you are encountering challenges, and that we oftentimes have more control over how we react to external events than we may realize. And I hear that thread going through these conversations pretty consistently, and I have found that to be super interesting. Do you find that, um, especially younger people, what that they are both hungry for advice and have a lot of the same questions? I think that's right. But I think the need for this information, I mean, I know you wrote the book for this particular book um, for a younger audience, but I think that need for collaboration, that need for validation, that need for advice, that need for seeing someone else who's tackling maybe the same challenge, but from a very different standpoint, we still need that as we continue on in our careers. And because change is such an inevitable thing, you're always going to be pivoting and pivoting and growing and growing and getting more input from different perspectives on how people have encountered those same challenges. That never goes away. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I continue to learn. That's one of the reasons I love Minute Mentoring. Um, I always walk away with thinking, oh, wow, I never heard it that way. Or gosh, I should really try that. Um, one of those was the uh, whole idea of work-life balance and um, someone that you know as well, Megan O'Sullivan, saying mm -hmm. that sh the way she thinks about work-life balance is not over the course of a week or a month, but over the course of her life. Mm. And that there was a That's period in her life, like when she worked at the White House, where it was five years of uh, full-on work all the time, um, missing, missed out on a lot of family functions. And then after the White House, she um, wrote a book. Uh, she's an energy and Middle East expert. Um, she got married. She has two children. Um, and she says that her balance is really, really good right now, but that she was able to get to that point because of the hard work she had put in earlier. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I have a similar story myself in that I feel like the idea of work-life balance wasn't a thing for me until I actually had children, that mm -hmm. I could completely put my foot on the gas. And I worked in big jobs in government on Capitol Hill and then in the Bush administration, which is where, where you and I know each other, and then at PricewaterhouseCoopers. But I was already established in my career at the point in which Joel and I, my husband Joel and I got married and then ultimately started having children. And the fact that that was the case, it gave me more ability to say to my bosses, I am going to work from home on Fridays. You know, I am going to to dial into this meeting before that was the cool thing to do. I mean, now the I norm. Suspect, <laughs> yeah. Now I suspect that we're going to see um, sort of the nature of work change pretty dramatically as a result of COVID. But but back then that was, you know, something that there were a few people doing, but they weren't really talking about it all that openly. Um, and so I felt like it gave me 
Um, they had already made an investment in me, uh, the company had. And so that gave me the ability to say, hey, let's try it this way. They already knew what they had with me. They knew that I was dependable. They knew that I could get the work done. And so they were much more willing, I think, to do that as opposed to if I had asked for that, you know, three months into the job. Um, and so I do think that it's important to think about your life and this idea of work-life balance or work-life pri- prioritization as maybe seasonal, right? Or I had a guest on the podcast describe it as a mosaic, that there's these different pieces of the puzzle that ultimately come together. I mean, however you describe it, the bottom line is it's really, really hard to do everything all at once. And if you are trying to do everything all at once, you need some incredibly good childcare. You need to be around family or you need to have a full-time nanny or babysitter or some kind of mechanism because children, if if that's what you choose to do, children do not raise themselves. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to be there with them, either a spouse that stays home or you've got to you've got to dial back, but all things can't happen at once. And so recognizing that and being practical about that consideration, I think, is really important. So you have all these hours of she said, she said. And I'm wondering what over the, what has stuck out to you as some of the best pieces of advice. And you can just start wherever you want. Oh, my goodness. That's always it's such a hard question because there is so much. And I, you know, like my children, it's like picking between my kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love I love every single conversation for all different reasons. Um, you know, one of the ones as I was reflecting on this question, and I actually talk about her a lot because her story has so many elements that I think are so helpful and instructive. And it's this woman whose name is Brittany Underwood, and she's the CEO of a social impact jewelry company called Ecola. And she found her calling, essentially, on this trip to Uganda. She was not somebody who was particularly focused on social impact. In fact, she was a sorority girl at Southern Methodist University, and she was going off on an adventure to Uganda with two friends. And ultimately, through that adventure, which was kind of a terrifying experience for her, I think, on, on, on one hand, she actually found a calling and a place where she needed to invest. So she you know, met women who were there. She wanted to help them. She wanted to help the children in this community. She came home, she raised money, she built an orphanage and then realized an orphanage is precisely the wrong thing to do because it doesn't create the mechanism to help these women create a sustaining model for themselves that creates jobs and creates money on an ongoing basis. So she had to pull the plug on what, you know, something that really people were looking at as a huge success, she realized was actually a failure. And so to recognize that failure, come home, recalibrate, go back to school, figure out a model that would work. And then ultimately through that built this incredible jewelry company where it's got a sustaining infrastructure, giving jobs to these women in Uganda that enables them to make a living, feed their families. And then it creates jobs for at-risk women in Dallas, Texas. And so the elements of that story that I love so much is not only that it's a really inspiring story, but that she was willing to admit defeat at a point in which there was a ton of visibility on her at the point in which she was opening this orphanage. 
TV cameras were coming in to cover it. It was it was considered a huge success. And it was only her realization that this is not sustainable and this is the wrong answer. Mm. So I, you know, I love that. I love that a lot of times these conversations are things that you might not expect and that women are willing to talk about, you know, quote unquote failure. I hate the word failure, Dana, because I think it's such an oxymoron, right? We learn so much from our failures that we should never really talk about it as a quote unquote failure, but it's really an opportunity to learn and grow. Yeah. It's an inflection point or a a, a chance to go, whoa, okay, maybe I need to go in a different direction. Yes, absolutely. We learn so much from that. And I thought that story was one that really crystallized that notion of taking that idea of quote unquote failure and really pivoting and, you know, looking for a way to, to, to make a big difference. What's some of the best advice you've heard for um, women? I usually get this question. Um, either how do you know when you should leave a job or if they want to make a career pivot? Sort of the best way to do that. Have you heard any good advice on those two fronts? So I think in terms of leaving a job, perhaps the most important consideration, and this this was true for, for me, and it was a really hard decision at the point in which I decided to leave my executive job to pursue something that was much less certain and much less comfortable, I must say. Um, you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of soul searching. But I think the bottom line is when you feel like you're not growing as much because you're not taking maybe the same risks that you took earlier on in your career that helped you to get to that that place in the first place. And, you know, as we talked about before with work-life balance and with, you know, taking into account considerations, if you have a family and you have children, people who, who depend on you, sometimes you, you're not in a position to continue to take those risks at every moment during your career. But I think recognizing when you're not growing as much, when you're not challenging yourself, those are the times when you have to say to yourself, maybe I should think about doing something else. Um, there are lots of reasons why people should leave jobs, but I think in terms of continuing to pivot to the next level, it's really about learning and growing. And if you're not just a little bit uncomfortable and pushing yourself, you're probably not where you need to be. Yeah. You probably should be making yourself get comfortable with that idea that you got that feeling in the pit of your stomach that you don't 100% know what you're doing. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Like, Do you ever talk to people about imposter syndrome? All the time. Maybe it's for people who might not be familiar with the term, maybe explain that and, and how people can sort of get past it. Yeah. Well, imposter syndrome is a big one. We talk about it a lot on She Said, She Said podcast. It's this idea that even though you've reached a particular level of accomplishment or success, that you still question how the heck you got there, (laughs) that you question whether you were really that you were really qualified, that you really knew enough, or that you just got lucky. And this tends to be something that affects women a bit more than men. Men also have imposter syndrome, but I would say disproportionately, women probably feel it a bit more acutely than our male counterparts. And you hear stories of women at the highest levels, whether it's Christine Lagarde or Sheryl Sandberg, or I mean, just plenty of women that I've talked to who admit to feeling like they're not quite sure how they got there. (laughs) 
We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I sort of like you said, I remember one time being um, at the podium at the White House and somebody asking me a question. And I internally, I was like, why in the world would they think I know the answer to that? Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just... I'm just from Wyoming, please. <laughs> it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. Um, what about um, advice for people that are seeking a promotion or a raise and the approach to that? And then on the flip side of that, dealing with any disappointments that come, like when you don't get the promotion or the raise. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. So I think Related to a promotion or raise or whether you're seeking a new job in all of those areas, you have to think about how you package and internalize the value that you bring to the organization. You also need to understand strategically where you fit, right? What is the value? What what investment have they made in you? What is the value that you're bringing? What's that unique thing that you're doing maybe that nobody else is doing? And I think it's really important that you orient your thinking around that before you go in and ask for that raise, right? You really want to prepare and do your homework about where you fit into this, what value you're going to bring differently, what you can what you can do to maximize their value and their investment in you if you're given this promotion, this job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's one really important piece of advice in terms of how you how you think about that value. It takes a lot of preparation. Um, it takes owning your story. It also maybe takes understanding that you may not have, of what is um, asked for, maybe on the piece of paper that outlines what that job is all about, you may not have all of those things. You may have 70% or 90% of those qualifications. That doesn't mean that you don't still need to go for it, that there are ways in which you can package what you've done to be relevant um, in terms of skill sets for that job or that promotion that you're going for. It doesn't mean that you're always going to get it, but it does. it is a way of orienting your thinking as opposed to saying, well, 10% of this I've never done before. Find a way to make your existing experiences applicable to the job that you're going for. Then you ask me what to do when you don't get that right. You ask me yeah, what to do. I, just, I, I think that helping people think through how to get over a disappointment at work. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people will, let's say, if they don't get the job and like a male colleague gets it instead, you know, that disappointment can really turn to anger and bitterness pretty quickly um, without some introspection of, okay, why was it that they went with that person instead of me? Um, right. And showing that you can be resilient at work, uh, to, I don't want to say take a punch because that just sounds like it's, violent, but that you can get up off the mat. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I I think you're exactly right that you, you, I mean, the way I like to think about it and the way that we talk about it in the class that I, that I teach is to not that it, that, that your, that someone's rejection of you is not about your value as a person. These are different things. 
right? And that you shouldn't internalize or over-internalize what that rejection means about you. And to your point, you should look at why you didn't get the job and ask why you didn't get Mm -hmm. the job or what you could have done differently and be really proactive about that. They might actually reconsider, right? If you do a good job of repackaging and saying, well, I did, I failed to mention that I also have these experiences as well. You never know. You might, there might be another opportunity that opens up as a result, but really owning your story and owning your growth and development as it relates to those setbacks. What could I have done differently? You Mm -hmm. know, Um, really understanding that I think is very important, but most of all, not interpreting someone's rejection of your candidacy or same thing goes with constructive feedback. When somebody gives you constructive feedback that might feel a little harsh, again, not interpreting that, that it equates to your value as a person. It doesn't. It's about helping you get better. It's about helping you improve. It's about helping you figure out what you need to work on in order to get to that next level. And remember, not everybody that gives you feedback is um, is necessarily going to be spot on, right? Mm-hmm. So getting more than one person's feedback, if you get constructive feedback and it's pretty harsh, you might want to ask several people who you know will be honest and objective about your, your growth and your development. And if you hear the same thing over and over again from those objective people too, then you know you probably have some work to do as it relates to your development. Um, but it's a great way of thinking about it thinking about it really dispassionately, thinking about it as objectively as possible, putting yourself in the driver's seat to some degree. When you know that somebody's about to give you constructive feedback that might be tough or you suspect that might be coming, prepare for it. Think in your head what they might tell you that you need to work on and be prepared with follow-up questions so that you can say to the person, hey, have you ever worked with anyone else who's had this challenge? And what was your advice for them? Have you ever struggled with this? You know, what's your advice for dealing with that? Sort of by taking control back to some degree, by putting yourself in the position of asking questions and of really driving that, it shows that you're really invested in your development. And it also maybe gives you uh, a bit more comfort as you're having this conversation Mm -hmm. with your boss or whoever's giving you the feedback. Which sectors of the economy do you think have done the best job of having um, good uh, diversity and promotion of women? Um, Where's the best place where you can get um, a good foothold and start climbing that ladder? I've always long, I've long believed that for a long time, government was a great place. Uh, And actually, if you look now at that, might not be in terms of members of Congress, although um, mm-hmm. there's a lot more women in Congress than there were before. And of course, Kamala wow. Harris is now the vice president. Um, but you look at the chiefs of staff or the general mm-hmm. counsels up on Capitol Hill or throughout the federal agencies, there's a lot of women. Has corporate America sort of caught up? And is there a sector that you've been impressed with? So I, I would say that there are a few sectors that lag behind. I guess I would sort of think about it a bit differently. You know, I came out of, I, I spent 12 years of my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers as an executive. And the consulting, accounting, auditing firms have, I think, historically done a great job. I mean, they're in the in the service sector. And they've done a great job of thinking very proactively over a very long period of time about how to 
how to tackle some of these challenges that relate to having a good diversified workforce. And by diversified workforce, I mean having not just diversity of gender and uh, and race, and but also you know ideology and expertise. Really, getting a broad mix of people because that mix helps you with problem solving. So, I feel like those organizations and that sector have really been on the cutting edge for a pretty long time. Finance historically has not been great. The you know the Wall Street world. I think they're doing a much better job than they used to. But you know, still there's. There's some lingering, <laughs> there's some lingering baggage um, from that sort of male-dominated world, and I think you see that to a degree. Whether you're talking about energy, I mean, those sectors that have been really traditionally male-dominated, I think, still have quite a bit of work to do. Um, but I, you know, I I hadn't really thought about it. I, I can really speak more to where I come from and the work that those organizations have have done. And, you know, even at the time in which I joined PwC, it was much less diverse from a gender standpoint than what it is today. And I would frequently find myself in uh, important executive meetings with maybe another woman, maybe I might have been the only one. Uh, I was the first woman to hold my particular job. I was one of the few women on the on the management team, not the only one, but I was one of only a few. Um, and so those things have changed and evolved, but it does take investment and really focusing on making sure that you're getting that that diversity of perspective and really thinking broadly about that concept. How do you advise people to find a mentor or a how to like look for a role model? That's a great question. You know, it's funny. I just had someone on the on the podcast this week who was one of the eight original co-founders of BlackRock. She was the only woman and one of eight co-founders of BlackRock, which they went from like zero now to $9 trillion under management. And we talked about this idea of mentorship. And, you know, the challenge sometimes that that we encounter with corporate programs is that there will be an attempt to force match people that don't know each other. In, in an effort to you know create network networking opportunities, right? It's not it's not uh, it's not a horrible idea. It's just that it's hard to ultimately make those those matches turn into relationships when you don't have anything in common to begin with. And so, Barbara Novak, who was my my guest, gave me some great advice around that, and it was to go into these conversations with a thought toward how that that mentor you've been matched with, who you don't know, who may not turn out to be your long-term mentor, how that person can help leverage their own reputation and help you network with the people that you do need to know within the organization. And so use those matchy programs a little differently than the way that maybe they were originally intended. And so think about them as an opportunity to build your network. As I think about mentorship, at the end of the day, it's really about building a relationship with someone and thinking about it as a two-way street. I had one of my mentees who I always use as a great example case, and she was an intern at the time. 
um, she would come into my office. She would, she would get schedule time with me and she would come into my office with a list and she would have her list of 10 things that she wanted my feedback on. And then she'd have a list of, you know, five or seven things for me that she either articles she had read that she thought I would be interested in or specific questions that she um, wanted me to think about as it related, all kinds of things. But she always had like a list for herself and then a list of things where she was trying to be helpful and add value to me. And I thought that was such a great way to think about that relationship because it is very much a two-way street. If you really want to solidify it and have this person go to bat for you and really become not just a mentor, but a sponsor, someone Mm. who opens doors for you, that you want to have that relationship. And it requires that. And it requires care and feeding, right? She would follow up with me with great ideas. And all of my, my best mentees do that. They send me notes, they reach out, they have feedback maybe on the podcast or something else that I'm working on, um, which I love. And it just, it keeps that person on your radar and also um, reinforces the fact that they care about you as the mentor, in addition to you caring about them as the mentee. Isn't it fun to see them succeed? Love it. It's my favorite thing. Wow. Look at that person go. I love it. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. Have you had any great time management skills? I'm always, I'm obsessed with my schedule. Yeah. And I'm always trying to make it better. Yeah. Me too. I, I am obsessed with productivity. It is, it's one of those things that I think is just literally wired into me. Um, let me think about good suggestions for time management. You know, I will tell you that, and I don't know if you had her in your book, I can't remember. Um, Laura Vanderkam, who's an expert on productivity and time management. Oh, I remember, <laughs> I remember your podcast with her, uh, like it was yesterday, <laughs> she, like one of the things she said, and I did add this in the book was, um, she taught me to not have a to-do list of 12 things, but just yeah. to have three to five things, right? Yes. Is that her advice? Yes. yes. Well, uh, uh, among other things. Yes. Um, she, she talks about the fact of recognizing that everybody has exactly the same amount of time. It's all in where you spend it. And she's a woman who has, I believe she has five children, either five or six children, and they're all under the age of like, I don't know, maybe 11. So, so she literally has her hands full. She's, you know, she writes full time. She has two or three different podcasts. She writes, she's written a number of different productivity books. So, you know, she is all about, awareness about where you spend your time. And she's somebody who set about to understand where she spent every half hour of her day. And she logged her time for a period of time. I can't remember how long, if it was a month or six months or something like that, but basically long enough so that she understood where her time was going then she could figure out how to eke more productivity out of it. Where were those windows where she wasn't getting as much value from her time and also figure out as she you know, began to have children and have a growing family, making sure that she was building in time for all of those other priority items that she was putting on her schedule. And so this idea of awareness, I think, is really important, whether you're talking about your own personal development, whether you're talking about your diet, whether you're mm-hmm. talking about where you're spending your time. That awareness and reflecting on that, I think, is one of the most important tips because, as she says, and she's absolutely right, we all have the same amount of time. It's all a question in where you spend it. 
And if you're somebody who tends to have a bit of OCD and doing 50 things at once, that may not be the best way to get the best uh, sort of content from your day or the best output from your day that you really may need to work on establishing that flow. And to your point, Dana, narrowing things down so that you're only focused on three things in a day. You may have a hundred things on your to-do list, but you don't want a hundred things on your to-do list for every single day because that's overwhelming. No are you, are you at the point now in your career as you have this project that you're in the middle of and um, I think that you definitely feel challenged and it's new and different, as you said, a little scary and For um, sure. fun and you get to meet these great people um, and you're you're doing this on your own. Um, but are you at a point now where you're not worried about what's next or do you spend a lot That's of time so thinking funny. about that? No. And, you know, I never have. Oh, I <laughs> have. I did my whole life. Oh, my gosh. Never. Uh, and and fact- absolutely. <laughs> I like I needed to know and I was I'm always like planning ahead and (laughs) it wasn't until the last few years that I let that go Uh and trusted that it's all going to work out and I guess part of the you know when I wrote with the book it's every career advancement was not something I planned or change or you know there's one thing that Peter and I want to do Uh, we have a, a goal as a couple to do a longer term mission trip in Africa Oh, wonderful. Together. Um, and look, I'm looking at the calendar and I got a birthday and he's got a birthday coming up. And, you know, I'm like, we got to do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. we want to I mean, do it- that. And so, you know, I'm almost saying that out loud so that people hold me accountable to make sure <laughs> that I do it. But uh, beyond that, I am not worried about what I'm going to do, to do next career wise. But I find a lot of young people are very much concerned and worried about what their what their next move is. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm like you. I never, re- I never had a a plan as it relates to you know. Here's where I want to be at 30. Here's where I want to be at 35. Here's where I want to be at 50, et cetera, et cetera. I, I never, I never did that because I always had this view, and I still have this view that when you or that if I did that to myself, that that would close off options that I didn't even know were possible because I grew up in a really small town. I had a limited awareness of the world. And as I would encounter the world at every step along the way, it would open up amazing doors that I didn't even know were there. And so if I had had a plan that this is where I was going to be and this is at this point in time and this point in time, this point in time, I never would have maybe been as open-minded about the possibilities that ultimately have presented themselves to me. And so as I think about what's next, I think about it more in terms of specific benchmarks and specific things that I want to tackle as opposed to where I want to be and by when. As you and I've talked about, I desperately want to write a book and I'm, you know, working on that possibility as we, as we speak. Um, but so so that's like a benchmark that I have for myself, and I want to do that at some point. But it doesn't have to be this year. It doesn't have to be five years. It's just something that I'm going to ultimately do. Mm-hmm. And so I think about more goals as opposed to thinking about what is next or what will I do next. Okay. I don't know if that's a, that answers. Yeah, your that's question, a good question. But... A good answer. Okay, my final question for you as as a mom of two, you have um, a son and a daughter. Yes. Um, any words of wisdom that you've either gleaned from the podcast or um, that you, well, not even just the podcast, but in people that you talk to, I know you do a lot of networking. Um, mm-hmm. What do you hope that they 
are seeing in you that they can replicate in the future? Yeah, that's a that's such a great question. I and a big part of why I did this. I did I you know and I left my job and and pursuing this for a number of different reasons, but one of them was specifically to show them this idea of really pivoting into something that was a real departure for me. And t- and I talk very openly with them about taking the risk and challenging myself and doing something that is very much outside my comfort zone and having to literally learn it from scratch. I had, you know, very basic knowledge of podcasting and radio, you know, back back when. Um, And so they know that this was something that I've had to learn how to do and that every day it presents new challenges or things that I hadn't considered. And so I think talking to them about taking those risks, and this is especially true for my daughter, I think, um, talking to them about doing that, talking to them about being afraid but not letting that fear stand in the way of you actually doing what you know you need to do. And so I talk very openly anytime I'm getting ready to give a speech or before this conversation, I was a little bit nervous. You don't make me nervous, Dana, but just, you know, speaking and being on. Yeah, sometimes sure. Well, you got to have a little nerves or nobody will pay for attention. For sure. For sure. So I, I say to them, you know, mom's a little nervous, but here's how we're going to take to use your analogy, Dana, because I know you talk about this, taking that those nerves and turning that into fuel and Mm -hmm. energy. And I've always done that as well. But I think they need to understand that just because you do this every day doesn't mean you don't feel nervous and that that's not normal, right? Just because you're nervous and have a little bit of fear, that's a normal feeling and it's absolutely okay. And so, you know, those are some of the things that we talk about. I mean, I'm trying to raise smart, thoughtful, independent children. We're and, and you I are succeeding. The- you oh, are I succeeding. Hope so. I hope <laughs> They're so. delightful. <laughs> well, best you. of luck to you with the She Said, She Said podcast. I highly recommend it. And I do Thank think that you. that book, um, you know, if you go back and listen to this conversation, you might realize you have a little proposal already in mind. <laughs> You're so sweet. Listen, I appreciate your help and support. I appreciate you putting the podcast in your book and inviting me on this podcast. I am very, very grateful for all your support and your friendship. You are it's the best. great to have yeah. a friend like you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, honey. Nice to see you. Whenever Laura Cox Kaplan posts a new interview on her podcast, I always rush to listen to it because I think you learn so many great things in a very conversational way that um, gives you takeaways that you can use to help make your career better. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.